0: Hey, everybody, this is Richard Deitch, and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer, as always, is Lou Pellegrino. Two great guests this week, Doris Burke, the acclaimed ESPN broadcaster, and Cheryl Reeve, the head coach and general manager of the Minnesota Lynx. Two great conversations, two really, really smart and intelligent women in sports, and I think you're going to enjoy it. Doris Burke and Cheryl Reeve coming up on the Sports Media Podcast with Richard Deitch. All right, and as I said at the top, we bring in... Dars Burke, who has uh, who has done, I believe, multiple podcasts with me before. I know Dars since uh, two thousand and three when she was uh, a New York Liberty broadcast. This is before you became part of a video game, Dars. Before you've blown up like uh, you know, like Drake and Kanye. I knew you when you know we were on the same level. So it's nice. It's uh, it's nice to have you back on the. Well, this is the new sports media podcast with Richard Dutch.
1: It's always fun with you. I'm looking forward to it. And uh, Cheryl Reeves is one of, one of my favorite people, and I'm just as good a coach as there is in the country. So happy to share a little time with Cheryl Reeves.
0: Yes, yeah, so, I mean, uh, just look at Cheryl Reeves' uh, numbers. The receipts do not lie. Um, Doris, before uh, we start, I will say that uh, as I talk to you now, we're taping this on a Tuesday, you have the Celtics-Sixers game three. could be interesting depending on what happens in game two.
1: I'll say I I, you know, I've heard so many people inside of the game of basketball that I respect sort of rave about the coaching of both men involved in this series, uh, both Brett and, and Brad. And when you think about the first several years of Brett's tenure in Philadelphia and how taxing that was, and I've always had Jeff Van Gundy tell me this, Richard, regardless of whether you understand your roster uh is not up to par with your competitors, uh, even if the expectation is that you're supposed to lose or going to lose, that it, it nonetheless is an incredibly hard thing to endure. I've had uh, Mr. Walton out there in Los Angeles essentially tell me the same thing. And so, you know, to see a guy pour his heart and soul into coaching over those first several years of his tenure, despite the results, was amazing to watch. And then Brad Stevens, I mean, you're talking probably about the third iteration of the Boston Celtics this year. Right. Your first iteration was going to include Gordon Hayward. Your second iteration focuses on Kyrie Irving. And you've reinvented yourself yet again. And here, Richard, is the one kicker for me. I can't remember if it was January or February, but Mike Breen interviewed Al Horford prior to the game, and he just credited Brad. He said, Brad doesn't blink. He just coaches the men in front of him. That's all he does. And there's a little bit of a mad scientist to him. I think he sort of likes zigging and zagging and trying to come up with new schemes and all of those things. So I'm I'm excited. I, I, I honestly, I can't wait for Saturday and I'll watch the rest of the games this week and have a good time. But there's something special about sitting courtside, that's for sure.
0: Yeah, that's going to be great. These are my words Brad Stevens to me is the best coach already in the NBA. I'm not sure he'd be my coach of the year. I think that would be doing Casey by the way, but uh the guy is what what he has done with that roster, it's uh it's mind numbing. Again, as we tape this uh the Celtics are up um the Celtics are up one nothing. But this podcast ours is about you. It's not about Brad Stevens. Um <laughs> so I I need to ask you of course we're just featured in the New York Times. of really um Thoughtful piece about you and your place in the NBA. And I think you are smart enough to know I'm going to ask you this. There's a sentence in there that really, um, as someone who has known you for a long time and someone obviously who covers sports media, sort of stopped me in my tracks. And you said that your contract with ESPN ends October 31st and that it's very anxiety producing. So I wanted Mm -hmm. to just ask you. Your work is exemplary. I have only heard good things from your from management about you. Why would you Why would the contract ending october thirty first produce anxiety?
1: <laughs> I think that is fundamental to the nature of announcers. to hmm. be perfectly frank with you i don 't really think i 'm that unusual and believe me richard i I am very confident that ultimately at the end of the day all will work out, but I think it's a unique way we live our lives, right? You live contract to contract and as someone who just watched in the revolution that is sports television right now, you know, a a very close personal friend of mine, Dave O'Brien, you know, essentially loses his job at ESPN, which had nothing to do with his performance at all, right? Right. It had nothing to do with his on-air performance. We're talking about an elite play-by-play broadcaster. And he's fine. You know, within within days, he had multiple job offers. He is the play-by-play for the most storied or one of the most storied baseball franchises. So uh, believe me, I think it's going to be fine. And I, my kids would roll their eyes because in the la- whenever I'm in the last year of my deal, Richard, if they hear the word contract once, they hear it 500 times. It's just... I think I'm fundamentally insecure as a human being and has nothing to do with what I believe is my abilities as an analyst or a sideline reporter, whatever the role ESPN puts me in, nor does it have anything to do with management. It's just, to me, it's like, it's one of the things that I think has always pushed me to to succeed is that fundamental internal insecurity of, man, you know, you've got to do a good job. It drives me to a certain extent. Wow. You sure and I have to give GNOME credit because... One, Noam was the single most prepared writer I've ever been around. He had read every article, seen anything ever written, talked to more people than you can possibly imagine. I mean, really, I was blown away by his level of preparation and diligence and everything he poured into that story. But, you know, he did. He picked up on the moment between Phil Dean and I, where he brings up, KD's contract and makes a crack. And I didn't even know he was paying attention to me saying, oh, I've been there or something, whatever my line was. I was like, oh, he didn't miss a damn thing.
0: Daris, I know you don't want to negotiate in the press. I understand that, and I'm sure your CAA agents would not want that either. That said, um, can you give listeners and certainly people who are fans of your work some insight on, does ESPN management, give you any indication that um, they're planning oh, to yeah. resign we're, you? Give us a sense oh, of what yeah, they've at least said oh, to no you. no question. Okay.
1: Yes, yes, yes. Uh, believe me, this has nothing to do with ESPN and everything to do with the nature of our work and my fundamental insecurity. That's the truth. Yeah. It, I, I believe wholeheartedly in my bosses at ESPN, and I certainly unequivocally believe in my representation at CAA. Those two things I have ultimate belief in. Yeah, shout it's out. funny, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna say this to you, Richard. Sure. Like uh when when Andrea Kramer and I sat down for that uh, piece that aired on HBO you know, she kind of kept peppering me in a in a similar vein. And, you know, there were a host of people around. That was a very involved production. And the way she kept answering the questions, at one point, if you saw the raw footage, I said something like, geez, you're really kind of bringing home for me how fundamentally insecure I am as a human being. And we had a good laugh, and it didn't make air, but how about that? Like, it's just, I think it's always driven me to be perfectly frank with you.
0: And that insecurity, Doris, doesn't go away with mm-hmm. experience? It doesn't go away with more reps, either in the NBA or, yeah. or doing women's college
1: basketball? Yeah, I'll say this to you. And, and like, and so this is, this is part of the conversation with Andrea that day, you know, um, where she said, uh, and I don't want to speak out of turn because I wasn't there when she interviewed Jeff Ann Gundy for that piece, and you saw whatever piece, you know, part he had said in it. But I believe there might have been a moment in there where, you know, Because as I've told many times, when the Doug Collins position opened, when those games came around, it was Jeff who said, you know, basically, are you aware? He laughed and I laughed. I said, of course I am. And he said, do you want those games? And I sort of chuckled again. And I said, of course I want the games. He goes, you know, it took Jeff prodding me to say, you've got to make that call. And me thinking, I'm not great at those calls. And... I want my work to stand on its own. Do I have to make that call sort of thing? And ultimately the right thing was I did need to advocate for myself as uncomfortable as that was. Hmm. Um, it's just not in my nature. I don't think if you know, if you know what I mean, I just it that, that discussion. I'll give you an example of how, why I have representation, right? This goes back to, and I know because this is the first time you and I crossed paths. This is how my memory works. I'm at an Atlantic 10 game in Philadelphia that you happen to be at. And anyway, the boss, of the person who hired me is Bob Stites. Robert Stites he used to be the associate commissioner of the Atlantic 10 and then was, you know, associate AD at Villanova. And my second year, so I get through the first year, as the lead analyst on the men's package, which in and of itself he had to pass by his coaches. And in the second year he said, let's talk about your compensation. And do you know what I said? I said, what you're paying me is fine. <laughs> and he laughed, and he said, I'm basically telling you to give yourself a raise. And so, the, you know, the whole business side of it is is a difficult proposition for me. I don't like it. I don't like the feeling of it. I'm, And so this is why you have representation, so they have those conversations, not you.
2: Yeah,
0: I mean, that is—you have hit it on the head as to why if— um... Why you have an agent, even if the agent is taking some of your um some of the money that the talent has in fact earned
1: yes, but they're earning that money right? right? If any announcer would say to you you know if if you're comfortable with your representation, then they're earning that money unequivocally and every every person I have had, and it's been you know two basically for all intents and purposes, I have felt so happy to share that money cause I expect to be compensated, and I think they ex- should expect to be compensated.
0: Nice. This is a very good promo for Matt Kramer, Doris. I think that's your agent, correct?
1: <laughs> yes, I yes. He so. he is uh, oh. along with Nick Conn, oh. my representation. Correct. <laughs> a
0: two ter- well, you have Kaiser Sose and Matt Kramer. You're gonna you're gonna. You should be okay. <laughs> um, so one of the things that um, is interesting to me in terms of this was your, you had your first full time year of being an analyst on ESPN's NBA coverage. And I wanted to know how you would evaluate your role and just what the year what the year has been like for you.
1: Well, the year was phenomenal. I, I hope the viewer can feel how much fun I'm having because I am having an absolute blast. And as you know, Richard, because I had called men's college basketball and women's college basketball, both of which have meant so much to me, Um, that was a difficult decision to, to, to give that up. But I, I've had a long time producer who at one time did some WNBA with me, but also now is one of our NBA producers by the name of Kenny Wolf. And Ken Wolf, anybody in TV would know him. He's a former Monday night football producer. He's been around forever. He's been associated with some, you know, some great events and has a long and, you know, well-respected history in the industry. And he used to say to me, you know, at some point, I think you have got to narrow your responsibilities. And ESPN was 100% correct. When they came to me and said, you know, we want to offer you this job, they did make it clear to me that they thought I needed to lock in on just the NBA. And I said, I 100% agree. And it was not easy. You know, it wasn't. Um, women's basketball, frankly, afforded me an opportunity to enter the business. Without the WNBA's formation in 1997, I can't continue to advance and grow. You know, being the New York Liberty announcer exposed me to Mike McCarthy, who was the head of Madison Square Garden Network. And um, he's the one who ultimately gives me my first NBA gig. So it was hard. Like, giving up women's basketball is hard. But I will tell you unequivocally, it was the right way to do it. And uh, I had a blast. I don't know what any other way to sh- say it. I had an absolute blast.
0: Doris, you um, you are assigned this year to I believe you, you you've already had this assignment right. You're doing the NBA, You're doing the sideline in the NBA Finals. Correct. Yes. Um, that obviously is a very very high profile job. Um, I've written about your preparation for that job as well as you doing the trophy ceremony, which is its own unique. Um, kind of uh, exercise that you have, I think, done exceptionally well. So I ask this Mm -hmm. question, understanding and giving the respect that this is a A++ assignment to get the sidelines of the NBA finals. Is there any Mm -hmm. part of you, Doris, as you're thinking about your next contract, where you don't want to do sideline reporting anymore, and that you either feel you've outgrown the role, or that you want to specifically focus on just being an analyst?
1: You know, because I have, locked in so hard on what I'm doing. I haven't even thought about that, to be perfectly frank with you. Um, but I will say this to you. it. Uh, I, I took my first Sideline gig. I kid you not, and I don't know if I've shared this with you before, but the first time I did Sideline was because I wanted to be a part of the Women's Final Four. I thought I had earned the right, but Ann Myers... Drysdale was our lead analyst on that, and you're talking about one of the greatest players in women's basketball history, right? Like, one of the most storied individuals ever. And so, I remember calling, like, this was one time, it took some courage, right? But I, I believe I called Mark Shapiro, who at that point was the president. I said, I'd, I very much feel like I've earned the right to be a part of that broadcast, and he was like, "Well, Anne's not coming off as the lead analyst. And if you want to be a part of it, this is the job you have to have." And I was willing to take it. And I called in a dead panic after taking that job, Michelle Tafoya and Al Troutwick, and I basically said, "How the hell do you do it? What's what are your responsibilities?" And I remember Al Troutwick telling me a story on the phone when I when I said, "What do I do? How do how do you do it? What's appropriate? You know." And he gave me the greatest advice ever on Sideline, and I tell Sideline reporters this all the time, he said, he goes, there are many nights you will step off the air and you will feel as though you are a key contributor to the broadcast and that you raised the level of the telecast by the input you had. But I will tell you, there will be far more nights where you step off the air and you think to yourself, oh my gosh. I got paid for that. I, I didn't impact it in any way, shape, or form. Or if I impacted, I impacted it in such a small way. <clears throat> because a sideline reporter goes into a telecast with any number of storylines. I mean, you, you're brimming with ideas. And you think you can elevate. And you might be hit, hitting your talkback button and trying to get the producer's attention. And just because the way the game might play... You're not you're not, not, go- not going to get in because ultimately for the best, you know, enjoyment of the viewer, it just didn't make sense on that particular night. And that's hard. Like I'm not going to sit here and tell you I like the sideline better than the analyst. It's not close. I love the analyst role. That is my preferred role. No questions asked. That said, any repetition I have, any opportunity I have to be around these coaches and these players and to to, to talk to them directly, to pepper them with questions from things I don't understand, to maybe understand them individually better, to bring the viewer closer to them, then that's a helpful repetition for me. And I will do it, you know, listen, at, at, at a certain point, I am an employee of ESPN, correct? Like, that's what I am. And so, you know, I and listen, do I think that if I went to them and said I didn't want to do sideline, that they would, they would probably listen? Yes, but I will tell you, I have not crossed that bridge in my mind. And the conference finals and the NBA finals are appointment viewing for me. That's appointment viewing. And I am fortunate enough to be sitting there courtside and listening to what I consider to be the best broadcast booth in sports. Jeff, Mark, and Mike, hell yes, I want to be there. Um,
0: you're gonna hate me for asking this, but I'm gonna do it anyway. Um, so that said, as you know, Mark Jackson has been interviewing for NBA jobs. There is, I guess, mm-hmm. a possibility that Mark could land one of those jobs. Mm-hmm. Have you or your representation let your bosses know you would be interested sitting next to Jeff Van Gundy and Mike Breen if Mark Jackson was to get one of those jobs?
1: I have absolutely no doubt in my mind that they would consider me for that position. I don't, have, I don't have a d- doubt in my mind, and so here I am, this interesting like you know uh, it's two two opposite sides of the spectrum where i I believe in my abilities as an analyst, and I think my performance was very strong this year. I certainly have you know ways to go and but I believe in my abilities as an analyst, and I believe they would consider me for that.
0: Hmm. Well I appreciate you answering that Dars. Thank you. You're a psychologist dream Dars. You're you you have all these different facets about you. I like it very much.
1: Um, yeah, right. It's true. It's true. <laughs> hey, listen. You know, I don't know. It's 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 an interesting it's an interesting deal. My kids would have a field day they could tell you some stories. I'm sure the word contract is like I don't ever want to hear it again, mom.
0: Yeah, they're my next guest star, So I'm calling them at five thirty. Be
1: um, Better yet, have my son do some impersonations of me because you'll oof. fall off your chair laughing. <laughs> I'd like that. i Mike
0: might, might, might find. Might track him down to do that. Um, one of the th- one of the things I th- I think has happened, and I want I, knowing you were going to be on the podcast today, I wanted to ask you about this. But you know, you've always been one, um, and even if you're not comfortable with it, you understand that you've been a pioneer in sports broadcasting just given the assignments that you've gotten and right now we're at a place where yourself cara lawson sarah kustak stephanie reddy over the last two years are all women who have done um the color job on nba games and Mm -hmm. i wonder if you think now daris that that whatever that um glass ceiling was for that position Mm -hmm. is now shattered Mm -hmm. forever you know in the nfl beth malin's called an nfl game this year but she's only still a subset of one but it's my right. thought that you Kara, sarah and stephanie have sort of changed the equation now that if nothing else mm-hmm. if there's a qualified woman to be a color analyst on the nba it's not an issue anymore and that you, that, that person's going to get the job the 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 gender part of that equation mm-hmm. is done thanks to you am i being too optimistic do you think that we think we're there
1: no, you know, I think that there's been a process to this whole thing, right? Um, it just very much the way we're watching the process of Becky Hammond, you know, be an assistant coach on this and Antonio Spurs. Yes, I do think that uh, far more, um, you know, people in television would be willing to consider a woman as an analyst. No, There's no question about that. I think the other piece of that, and I sort of touched on this with Nome, was And I have no, uh, you know, I can't quantify this, right? There are no hard numbers to back me up. I can only tell you that there is a fundamentally different reaction to me in that chair than there has been historically. Mm -hmm. I mean, fundamentally different. And you're talking about passionate, knowledgeable women when you talk Kara and Stephanie and Sarah. So, you know, I'm, um, yes, I would like to think that that's not an issue anymore. How have you? But I, I don't go, know, you know, you know, I don't know. I would like to think that's the case, yes.
0: Have you, one of the things that I think was always uh, true, um, when you were, when I had talked to you and you would be doing the sidelines of the NBA finals, um, you're part of the broadcast. Um, I think the people around the league certainly respected your your knowledge and your um, your length or experience in the game. But, Darce, you'd always know, like, th- there's a difference between the sideline, how I feel like the athletic establishment treats the sideline reporter versus the color analyst. Mm-hmm. And I wonder sure. if even this year you have noticed, now that you're in that chair versus the sideline, is it a different feel when you're talking to coaches and when you're talking to
1: GMs or,
0: no. is, or is it the same? Okay. No. It's the same. All
1: right. Interesting. No, it's absolutely the same. And that's, that's the point I've made historically is <clears throat> even when there's been exception to me outside the game, that's an analyst and I'm going back years, you know, I remember in this, I don't know how many years ago this was. And this is where I say the, the fundamentally insecure piece of me, I'm really kind of opening myself up here, but whatever. Um, you know, I did need sort of the reassurance, and that was what I was trying to get with Andre Kramer. Like, so one time, again, maybe six, seven years ago, right, we're in a, a pre-game coaches meeting, which we do every game with NBA coaches, and they're just silly moments, but they meant a great deal to me as I was coming up, and I don't know that these people recognize that, but I remember distinctly Rick Carlisle went to leave our meeting. And he just stopped and turned and grabbed both of my shoulders and turned me to him and said, you know, you're doing a great job. Like, I I am enjoying listening to you. And, and he probably didn't recognize it at the time or the time Greg Popovich, you know, in a, in the same exact setting said something along the lines of, oh, you know, Darsh, you're a basketball person, you get this. I would go back to those little moments of just encouragement. They didn't look at it like that. I think they were like passing conversation boom, but it helped me. I'm not going to lie. Like, it was like getting that pat on the back from a coach. Not that I necessarily needed that as much as a player, but this was, it was, you know, a different thing. Doing the job I was doing, it was a different deal, and so I appreciated those little things. And again, I don't think those men or those players or anything knew the impact they were having on me. I'm sure they didn't. They didn't even think about it. it was just like, hey, you are doing great. So,
0: and uh, and Rick Harloff, uh, uh not only an NBA coach but a broadcaster as well. So it's just a, it's, it's yeah, uh, yeah, it's sort of dual complementary uh, dual compliments there. You are a person who I really wanted to ask. Uh, about this because of um, your tenure in the profession. You can certainly understand um, how the back story would have worked in terms of producers talking to sideline reporters. You certainly saw the reaction, and you also, I'm sure, mm-hmm. um, know this woman as well. How did you view mm-hmm. Ali LaForce's um, question to Le- LeBron James, and what was your assessment of the the strong debate about that question after she asked it?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, I, I remember—I um, don't. I think I—I tweeted and You know, I'm not super active on right. social media, but I remember watching Allie early in her career on the NCAA basketball tournament, and I felt compelled to tweet out, "Man, she asked great questions." I was just like, "Wow, she's really good." So that's first and foremost, you know. I just—I think she's conducts herself like the consummate pro, and but I'll be honest, like. You know, you always, I think, as an announcer, evaluate your performance in any role you're doing. You evaluate. Did you do a good job? Did you miss a storyline? Did you say something stupid? Like, we all do it. You know, sometimes you just, you listen back and you're cringing, or you're just like, why did you phrase it that way? I will tell you, having watched that moment live, I texted Tim Corrigan, who is the coordinating producer and produces our NBA finals, and I said... Would we have made the decision to ask the question, and this is before Ernie Johnson came on at the next break, right, where he interrupted, uh, you know, not interrupted, but you know what I'm saying. He gave an update, and he made a point to say he basically, for all intents and purposes, for lack of a better way to say this, he cleaned it up. He let America know that of LaForce and the producer on that game had tipped LeBron James that he was, is this okay to ask the question? And I remember watching it live and thinking to myself, because you always do this, you put yourself in that announcer's position because we don't always make the right choice or the, you know, sometimes. But there was something in the back of my head thinking, she didn't do that on her own, right? Like they. There was discussion there with the producer. And I've told you this when we talked about the NBA Finals last year where I will meet, like if it's a closeout game, I want to talk to Tim Corrigan. He and I are going to sit down for 10 minutes, and I'm going to go, hey, here's my questions for this one, that one, this one. Is this order okay? What do you think of this? Am I missing something? I will actually at times go to Jeff and Mark. in a a closeout game and say, what do you got? is this all right? Sometimes, Richard, I will have them open my mic. So picture we're at commercial break, and I'm going to do an end-of-quarter interview. I might say to Tim Corrigan, could you open my mic, please? And I will say to the men at the table, because I trust their instincts and I certainly respect their coaching ability and how a coach might react, is this an appropriate question to this coach? How do I phrase this? You know what I'm saying? Like, all of us want to be on point and right. So in my head, I'm thinking, Ali, Ali, you know, that was dialogue between her and the producer. That was my first reaction. And then sure enough, Ernie cleaned it up so fast. And I thought, OK, they tipped LeBron James because certainly from LeBron and LeBron later explained that he he got caught up in the emotion of his answer. Right. But but to the viewer at home, and this is where you don't know what the viewer is is absorbing. I know what I absorbed. It looked like LeBron was surprised. And so, and, but ultimately he wasn't surprised. He said that was emotion. So it's interesting. I texted him right away. How about that? Because Mm. that's what you do. You want to, you put yourself in those positions so that you, if you happen to be in a circumstance that's unusual, that's out of the ordinary, you try to handle it the best way you can and the best way for the athlete and the viewer and everyone concerned
0: how often do you hear from um, younger women who are uh, working in an NBA broadcasting capacity, whether it's an Allie LaForce or Cassidy mm-hmm. Hubberth, Sarah Kustak yeah. today, they, do they contact you to talk to you, to, 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 to sort of uh, you know, yeah. tip your mind?
1: It's more young uh, women who might be in the local markets or who might be student-athletes hmm. who are interested and, you know, Cassidy and I work together and have become friends. And so she and I, I um, mean, we'll just text back and forth about different things, the game. And she's a passionate NBA person. So, you know, I might, if I'm watching the game, I might hit her on something or back and forth. Um, But, you know, no. You know, like, I, these women are so... I am marvel at the next generation, really, at their abilities and their professionalism and how they go about their job. And I would say it's more... And if some if some have a question, or they want to know what do you think about this, obviously I hope I'm very approachable and they can they can ask me questions. But I would say I would get more from from people who, you know, are are in local markets and and that kind of thing.
0: I want to ask you one question about sideline interviewing. You sort of Ali Laforce obviously uh, had a unique situation there. Obviously one that she brought. Uh, onto herself, and again, i am certainly wr- written about this, and on Twitter, I, I had no issues with how she handled it. Um, I, personally, I'm sort of an absolutist that if she didn't even give LeBron the heads up, I think that would have been an appropriate question, just because of LeBron James's place in the league, his, re- his relationship mm-hmm. with Greg. That, that's a fair debate, though, to have. Um,
1: I do right, want to ask— And e- frankly, LeBron has, handled, LeBron has handled anything that's been thrown at him perfectly. Correct. And he seems un- not uniquely suited, but well suited to 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 be in the position he is. I agree. So sorry about that. Richard. No, no, no. Yeah.
0: And I and I think he respects sort of uh, candor and and sort of honest moments like that. I did want I want to ask you about Greg Popovich because it's something um, that um, that is pretty interesting, and in that you have dealt with a lot of coaches on the sidelines, and. It's sort of How do I phrase this? There's always, it seems to be, Dara, sort of two ways to think about Popovich's answers with reporters. One, Mm -hmm. it's funny. He does the shtick. He did it with Craig Sager. We love the curmudgeonly answers that he does. And then the second one would be, why do reporters or why do media people give Greg Popovich a pass on that? Because they would not give a pass for that kind of behavior if it was somebody Mm -hmm. else. You are somebody who's Mm -hmm. literally been there with Popovich mm-hmm. on the court how do you mm-hmm. um, how do you evaluate how he handles that interview with people like you
1: right so all of this year and again you have to remember that my sideline opportunities in the regular season are few and far between right now they are right? correct yep correct and, and during the year you know I do some early then I switch over and then I switch back so it's I'm getting pockets of it, and I don't have to interview Pop very often. Doesn't mean I don't get frustrated with him, and and I have said this before. Um, I think it was uh, with Rembert Brown, who's a hell of a writer, and he asked me about it. Like, um, I've noticed the difference when when Jeff goes over there. So we had always given Pop a pass in the past because he would say I, I couldn't help myself. Right? This is nothing that I haven't said before. Well, you can help yourself because I've seen you help yourself. But if you notice this year, for a very long stretch of the year, uh, he was different, or at least he felt different to me hmm. um, when I watched. And um, it's an interesting question about, you know, why historically has he been given a pass? I don't know the answer to that. What I have noticed is, the criticism of him has picked up and there have been people at, even outside of the game, you know, radio hosts, writers, et cetera, et cetera, who, who have expressed real frustration with this. Um, and, you know, it's, it's been such a long time, right? Like if this was a uh, protest by Pop, well, the protest is clearly not working because you're still having to stand in there and do it and the reality is the sideline person is the person least equipped to make a change right you're talking about the least powerful person on the broadcast for all intents and purposes all right right that person you know they have no power to change it you're going to stand in there regardless of how you're treated and ask the answer i mean ask the questions and you know the the person asking the questions is typically as good as the subject because Ultimately, they've got to give a response to your question. You hope you craft the question well, but I'm not going to lie to you. I, I've said it before. It's frustrating. I, and, and going back to what I said about what is the viewer absorbing, if the viewer is feeling in that moment, Richard, when, when pop is being pop or if he is frustrated, if if the viewer feels uncomfortable, if the viewer feels like, ooh, you know, this could be a little bit embarrassing. I will tell you that that's what it feels like standing in there. It's uncomfortable. It's disconcerting. And sometimes, frankly, a little bit embarrassing, yes. So it's all of those things. And I've said that before, and I'll, you know, say it, and it doesn't mean anything is going to change, obviously.
0: I appreciate you answering that. I have one more... um... Uh, media-related question, then we'll finish up on some ba- some quick basketball ones. And that is, um, you know, over the course of the last uh, decade or so, you've gotten a lot more attention. The New York Times article is just a very small example of that, but you cited the Real Real Sports does a profile of you. You appear in a video game that millions and millions of NBA fans see. Uh, you know, you attract the attention of, uh, you know, one of the most famous artists on earth, on Drake, what what has this been like for you as somebody who at one time was doing low-level men's basketball games or sort of mid-level women's basketball mm-hmm. games to now being a, a very well-known figure in NBA circles or on NBA Twitter, which you know exists of millions and millions of people? Has that been an adjustment to be more of a public figure for you?
1: Uh, that's a good question. I, I will say you know, just being from the, the the purely human side of it. It is, um, it's nice, not that I'm not subject to some level of, you know, whatever happens on Twitter, but to not necessarily, just to walk into the arena and to have uh, little boys, like not even blink that, or, or not even, you know, young boys, but even just my son's generation, you know, my son's about to turn 25, like, they don't blink that I'm in the chair as an analyst. They don't blink. I'm a fundamental part of their world. And that is, um, rewarding is not the right word, but it is, it feels nice. Like everybody wants to be considered they're good good at their job and to be we all want to be liked to a certain extent I mean some people are more comfortable than others with being disliked or the and my job is not to be liked. my job is to be an analyst but to to have people think I I conduct myself with some measure of professionalism and some level of competency yeah you know that feels good so um the attention you know it's really more in arena and as you say some you know people maybe like a story here or there. So that's, I mean, it's nice. Um, but the coolest part to me is that there has been this fundamental shift for, um, for acceptance in terms of just guys don't even think about it anymore. They're just, we're just going to talk basketball. Like Noam had that little antidote because he, he saw this happen. Um, there were three boys, probably about 11 or 12, maybe 13, um, the night he happened to be in the arena and they're just like staring at me and, and uh, this little one goes, Hey, I, I just love your voice and your knowledge. I just, I just smiled, you know, it was like, Oh my God, that's so cool that this little kid thinks I'm all right. You know, yeah. it just, that's nice. Yeah, that's very cool.
0: All right. Well, I'm now going I'm to impress upon your knowledge as well. Um, I, as you know, I'm heading to Toronto in a couple months to live there full time. So mm-hmm. I'm fascinated of course, by the Raptors cab series. But I have no idea what the hell to think, Dars. So this is why I have you yeah. on the podcast. Yeah, um, <laughs> all right. You know, the Raptors far and away had their best um, best year, mm-hmm. essentially in the history mm-hmm. of their franchise. They bought into a new right. culture from Masai and Dwayne Casey. The bench is the mm-hmm. best in the league, and for the most part, yeah. by the end of that Wizard series, I think it was the bench that essentially won that game. Casey held true to his principles in Game Six, and they win. Conversely, mm-hmm. Cavs and Pacers go seven. Takes in yet again mm-hmm. another superhuman effort from LeBron to pull that through. You can make an easy argument that the Pacers were the better team. And lastly, the 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 Cavs are in the Raptors' head psychologically. They've been in their head for the last couple of years. It is very hard to assess this series, which is why you are thankfully doing it free of charge for me on this podcast, ours. How do you? Uh, <laughs> what do you? What do you expect from this? From this th- that current series?
1: Yeah, so it's so interesting because when I think about the Raptors, and I just had this very intriguing conversation with Masai Ujiri when I had their game six in D.C., and he had told me a couple of years ago, you know, we've we've figured out how to win in the regular season. We've got to figure out how to win in the postseason. And so that's an ongoing process. We've seen this historically with any number of superstars breaking through, beating that rival, et cetera, et cetera. Now, from a purely basketball standpoint, I love O.G. Ananobi. Like, this is an incredible athlete, versatile defender, but not quite there yet on the offensive end of the floor in terms of productivity from that position. And the Raptors have gone outside themselves historically looking to fill that position. So do they have enough at the 3 to be a championship team? Eh, Maybe not. Is it enough to beat LeBron James perhaps at his most vulnerable in terms of championship-caliber teams? I don't want to overstate that because watching what that man does on a nightly basis is something that is – it's just something to behold. Do the Raptors have enough long-range shooting? Mm, You know, those two things I do wonder about. Are they more uh, equipped in the new-age NBA? Absolutely. Absolutely. I had said throughout the course of that first series that Fred Van Bleet's absence was absolutely critical because having watched them over the course of the year, the one guy who had earned true equity and was closing games
0: yep, with great point.
1: Kyle Lowry and with and and with DeMar DeRozan and was hitting those deep corner threes. Think about this guy is in Detroit one night. He is one for nine. And the game is on the line. And don't make no mistake. DeMar and Kyle knew the kid was one for nine and they didn't blink and delivered the ball to him in the corner and he makes it. So they, that's a big deal. Is it enough to get by LeBron James? Like this is the fascinating aspect to me. Kevin Love looked like a shell of himself in the last series until the final game. Like there are so many interesting personal dramas playing out here. um, That what, you know, what what happens? I, I Listen, I can pretend I know. It's like I always said to Jesse, what do you say when they ask you to make predictions? He goes, I don't. I go, <laughs> okay. It's good to know I don't have to predict. I am fascinated by not only the basketball aspect here, but the human aspect. And having watched LeBron James, as you know so closely as I have, I, I don't know how he's doing what he's doing. I yep. don't.
0: It's fascinating. I, I Like you, I'm I'm just looking forward to the series. I think it's going to be great. Interestingly enough, as you know, that Van Vliet three in the corner preceded by DeMar DeRozan with one of the dunks of the year. That was an incredible game. Oh, the game. great call. Yeah. Mark,
1: Mark Jackson's call on that, you know, rim-to-rim dunk, I, this is why you love play-by-play guys, because when they're doing their job right, you get the goosebumps. It's like my, Mark Jackson. Uh, Mike Breen calling bang in a finals game, like one time a double bang on a huge Steph Curry shot that you just, you'll never forget the call.
0: One other question about the East, and then we'll quickly move on to the West. When you look, you have the Celtics and Sixers, as we Mm -hmm. mentioned, you're doing game three. But this is kind of an odd series in that it's not the full Celtic team. Um, Mm. So whatever the result is, you know, it's going to be sort of different as we head forward over the next couple of years. When you look at the two roster stars, and obviously – They're going to get draft picks over the next couple of years, but do you like the Celtics or Sixers roster? Which roster do you like better for long-term success in the East right now?
1: Well, do the Celtics keep Terry Rozier, who seems to be playing his way into a starting point guard position in the NBA? That's a
0: good question. I I Um, doubt they do, but we'll see.
1: Right, exactly. Listen, here's what I think ultimately about both rosters. I'm not evading the question, but... I haven't really considered it long time. Here's what I know. We could be looking at a rivalry as long as management continues to make great decisions for both rosters. We could be looking at the next great Eastern Conference rivalry, and this is why I think a LeBron James would object to the seeding the teams 1 through 16. Mm. Like the East is getting better, and there are some traditional regional rivalries that come about by nature of East versus West and, and all the complications that could come travel wise with the one through 16 seating. Like you look at the rosters and you look at how the teams are set up for a couple of years to come. And again, that's, that's accepting that management continues to do it in, in, in a way that's sound. And, you know, and here's what I, you know, this is one thing I've come to learn, like, I always used to ask the question on NBA rosters and to to players. Like if I would sit sit with Chauncey and Jalen, I would say, why is that damn last guy? They always say he's a team guy. Why does that matter? Why are you paying that guy $2 million to not play? And they're like, DB, you've been in a locker room. You understand how tenuous chemistry and, you know, the right mix of people. It's no different at this level. And so like... And then you can't waste roster spots. So Brian Colangelo's moves, and I know, you know Bellinelli and Ilyasova. none of the, none of the Sixers shot it well, um, which actually cost them a game or two in the first-round series. They didn't shoot it well the other night, but the reality is the acquisitions of those two guys, Ilyasova's defensive versatility and ability to make shots and the length he brings you know, on a very long Philadelphia team, that matters. And you know Bellinelli to me has got to take better shots. To me, sometimes he he has irrational exuberance and and takes some bad shots. And in this moment, those bad shots are exposed. I thought he took a couple last night, but I I hope set up for for I hope both set up for for a long term rivalry.
0: And then lastly, uh, at least in the basketball stuff, you know, obviously you have to play the games, but I think. Most NBA fans um, would agree, mm-hmm. or even observers would agree, that we're heading for the Warriors and the and the Rockets mm-hmm. in the conference finals. Do you think the mm-hmm. um, Rockets are at a point where that is now a pick 'em series, or do you think the Warriors, assuming Steph Curry's health exists, are still maybe a little bit a tick ahead of the Rockets?
1: I would say the the defending champion is a tick ahead. But I have been picking up what the Rockets have put down for much of the year. Um, I did have them in their first round series, and they they did not look like themselves. They're obviously getting closer to that iteration. And you know, I it's a fascinating thing. Like even them inside their locker room, we've had such fascinating discussions with with Mike D'Antoni about you know just and he, his line is. Is the truth. He's like, we'll see, right? Like, we've put it together. We believe in it. We think we have the players that can carry this out. But we'll see, right? We'll see. I do, but to me, I give Golden State the edge. Yes.
0: All right, Doris, Before we go, I mean, should I make should I basically call the uh, make a public call to ESPN management to get this contract done? I don't like you not being <laughs> resigned heading forward.
1: Doris. Don't don't worry. Believe me, it, I I listen. Do I always say this to my kids? Until I put pen to paper, I'm going to be a little bit nervous, but I'm I'm very confident, Richard. I I I appreciate that no one picked up on my anxiety because it's there. It's just natural, you know, like. It, to me, it's a normal feeling. Like you gotta, we live contract to contract. It's, I you know, I would liken it a little bit to like, so you you always hear this expression about um, NBA players. It's a contract year, and like, make no mistake. I had a coach last year, and he we're talking about a championship caliber team, and you know, one of his players, a reserve guy, but a critical guy, was coming into a contract year. and like, he, he knows he's aware. The guy's aware. The coach is aware, the organization's aware, everybody's <laughs> aware. I don't think it's abnormal. I, I am the gnome's right. I, I have I made that joke, I'm anxious, but I it will get done. Yeah. I, I you don't need don't make any calls. I've got good representation and there are good management of the SPN. We will get it done.
0: All right. Matt Kramer, Jimmy Petar, and Rob Savinelli. Don't screw this up. Let's let's go. <laughs> let's, let's make this happen quick. It's nice chatting with you, Richard. All right. Daris Burke is the um Listen, Darsberg doesn't really need an introduction. She is the claimed ESPN broadcaster who is a um now a full-time color analyst on the NBA. You will see her in this year's NBA finals on the sidelines and everybody on this call is confident that we're going to be seeing her on ESPN for years to come. Darsa, uh, it's always great to chat with you. I I'm sure I will see you in person somewhere along the way, but um uh, but I'd like to catch up with one of these uh 40-minute chats, uh, you know, every nine months. So I, I appreciate <laughs> you coming on on short notice, and as you know, I wish you only the best of success.
1: I know that, and it's always a pleasure. You call me anytime. would love to chat.
0: Dars Burke, everyone. All right, back in the studio, my thanks to uh, Doris Burke, who's always a great guest, and uh, she has a permanent invite here. And as long as her star doesn't get too big, I imagine she will take me up on that. From Doris Burke, we go to another acclaimed woman in her field. That is Cheryl Reeve, the head coach and general manager of the Minnesota Lynx. Under Cheryl, the Lynx have won four titles in the last seven years. She is one of the best coaches in professional sports. And I think you're going to enjoy this conversation on the dearth of media coverage in the WNBA. All right, and as I said at the top, we bring in Cheryl Reeve. She is the head coach and general manager of the Minnesota Lynx. And I gave you her credentials which are mighty in the sport at the top cheryl reeve welcome to the sports media podcast with richard deitch
2: thanks richard uh just uh just a pleasure to be here with you and and uh i follow you quite a bit in, in uh, your writings and, and on twitter and, and uh you're you know, I'm just a big fan
0: no, it's, just, it's a mutual admiration cheryl i appreciate that very much um all right, I want um, to. The, the reason I wanted you on, obviously, on top of the fact that um, I think you're a brilliant coach and I find you interesting, is that um, you've been very active on social media about the coverage of women's sports. Um, and you've really, really, I think, been more of an activist in the last year. And so that's where I want to sort of frame this discussion. But I want to start with the links. And I want to just start with a general question Why has the links not been covered? The way a team with four titles in seven years would be covered.
2: Well, I, I think the answer that that we get when we make the same inquiries is that uh, we, you know we're living in a world of limited space, uh, limited airtime, and, and therefore choices are made. And, and that's obviously a very illuminating comment uh, because it would it would stand to reason that uh, you know a successful team like ours would be carved out. Time would be carved out in the space that they have, and and you know, and I would say that that our our coverage certainly has improved during our our championship runs, and um, but it's like you said, if this was happening, you know, to an NBA team or you know NFL team, then you know it would just be through the roof, you know, round the clock coverage, and, and we just haven't seen that.
0: Sure, where does the responsibility lie, in your opinion, between? Um journalism organizations or media organizations making the effort to cover the links versus the links being proactive to try to get that coverage?
2: Well, I can say from, from our end, well, you know, one of the things that, that we've done here is, you know, we, we've sat down with our local media, you know, print, uh, TV, uh, anybody that, you know, that, that would listen to us that where we said to help us help you. You know, this is important to us. We, you know, we want to do, we want to make sure the access is exactly as you need and as you want. And so as we've gone through that, I've learned quite a bit about deadlines and, 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 you know, some of those uh, restrictions, airtime. who's has days off, when the days off are, you know, when somebody can get to us, when they can't. And so we've really tried to work within all those parameters that are given to make ourselves as accessible as possible. We say no to nothing. Hmm. Um, and that's kind of our philosophy. And I just shared that with our players in training camp, you know, we don't say no to anything there. There is nothing too small, too big, uh, too boring too whatever. This is all very important. So I know that the access is there. And so then, then there's the other side of it, which is, you know, the people making the decisions to cover, uh, to the extent or, or not cover the Minnesota Lynx or the WNBA. And so I think what we find there, and this is, this is my philosophy that, you know, you're largely finding, um, you know, men in the positions of power that are not seeing women's professional sports or women's sports uh, as worthy of being covered. And they're kind of hiding behind this, well, people aren't interested. And, and that's just a very frustrating uh, comment to hear, you know, and you hear it over and over again. And, and frankly, it's it's more of a, a tired comment. It's old, it's antiquated. And what we're finding, you know, especially here locally, is that people have a thirst for the coverage? Everywhere I go, people ask, "Why is it not on more? Why are we not getting more televised games? Why can't we read about it more? Why can't we see it, you know, during the six o'clock news or whatever it is that they're they're watching?" Uh, so there, there's demand there. You know, I I don't um, suggest that the demand is greater than than the other professional teams in our city. It's not that, uh, but there's certainly a demand there that's been underserved.
0: What's interesting to me, and I don't honestly know the answer to this, but I do want to ask you this. Do you now consider this part of your role as a um, general manager and a coach to do media outreach? Because this is not something that um, Steve Kerr necessarily has to do or Greg Popovich or Bill Belichick. But it it does seem, rightly or wrongly, that at least for you, this has become part of your job in the same way scouting is part of your job.
2: Uh, I, I couldn't agree more. And that's, you know, that's that's something that I see. I don't know that every coach or general manager sees it that way, but they should as we try to, you know, kind of grow in popularity and try to kind of combat the societal norms. Uh, you know, women haven't been playing professional sports very long as compared to the men. And so we have to do more. We have to, you know, you mentioned Steve Kerr doesn't have to do that. No, the coverage just happens just because they exist. And whether they win or lose does not matter. Um, you know, that was one of the first things I heard when we sat down with the media and I said, what do we have to do? And they said, well, win, obviously. And so I said, well, that's not obvious to me because I don't see a lot of winning and I see a lot of televised and articles written. So that can't be, that can't be just the, uh, sort of the bar for women's sports. It has to be, you know, what is the bar? you know, for, for your coverage. And, you know, because we're women, we have to quote, be more qualified. And, and that's obviously part of the problem. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think it's, uh, you know, absolutely is something that I have taken on as a responsibility. I feel like as the leader of this franchise, you now that's important to us It's and we're more than basketball, you know, we're, we're obviously trying to win games and, and, and do what we can to, for our own individual competitive success. Um, But we've always said this, and our players have embraced this, that what we're doing is more than basketball, Um, that we want to continue to push forward. We want to push the the envelope with regard to, you know, know, sort of changing minds one at a time, you know, about watching women play sports.
0: Sure. How much of this coverage dearth for, let's say, the WNBA is overt or latent sexism in society versus something else?
2: Well, you know, I'm... I think I largely believe that sexism is at the root of it um, because I, you know, through the years, you know, the the variety of things that, that a woman hears uh, that has been, you know, involved in sports, um, you know, just go to a comment section of, of, of anything said about women's sports and you can kind of see the, the, the uh, it's not really an undertone, it's the tone, um, you know, that we're considered less than. And I think, so there's sexism, but sexism is rooted in conditioning and conditioning from young. You know, I have a three and a half year old son. I'm seeing what's available for him to watch. I'm watching, you know, when we're at daycare, you know, the separation between girls and boys and how they're treated, why they're treated that way, what they're told, you know, when a boy cries or gets upset, they're told that's not okay. Uh, and that's, that conditioning just kind of goes on and and you know for a girl they're directed at certain colors they're directed at certain toys and so the conditioning goes on and then you get a little older then you start playing sports if you have a sport available to you as a young girl uh, that's that's something that doesn't happen very often there's way more opportunities for boys so that you know that's a separation and then, when you are able to participate, you see a difference in the resources available. It could be equipment it could be the, their their playing surfaces aren 't the same. Uh, we see that all the way through and you and you see what the women 's soccer team u s women 's soccer team was fighting for the playing surface <laughs> a safe playing surface right. the men aren 't fighting for a safe playing surface and so it, it starts it starts young, and the separation is just fast and furious in my opinion. And and uh, I think that you're, you're just, for a lot of men, they're conditioned to feel a certain way. There are so many men that I've talked to that have open minds and say, you know what, I, I will. I'll come to a game. You know, I really enjoy getting to know you. Let me come to the game. And they walk away going, holy cow, I had no idea. And then some of the things that they might say that, that we might bring to their attention saying, you know, that's really kind of sexist. <laughs> you really shouldn't say those things. And a person would say, you know, a guy would say, geez, I didn't realize that. Thanks for telling me that because I don't want to be that guy. So, so much of it is just learned behavior that I don't think a lot of it is intentional, but it's real. It absolutely exists.
0: It's interesting you say that, I know you know this about me. Um, I started covering women's basketball in 2001 um, at Sports Illustrated, maybe 2000 actually now that I think about it. I've got assigned to the UConn women. um team to do some features on them this was like the bird swin cash tamika williams era and i just found um one i one i found that the players were really interesting the access that i got as a media person was incredible compared to the pros and then i just found that the game itself was just pretty interesting when you're actually sitting down there and watching it um now again I, i i'm not sure i came to it with any overt sexism i was raised by a single mom so maybe my background is different but you, you are correct in that I have found that people who actually, or let's put it this way, reporters who actually end up going to a high-caliber game, a women's Final Four, or a really competitive WNBA playoff game, minds can be changed. Because you think, you think you know the athleticism from either occasionally watching it on TV or just reading about it, but you don't. So I do think you're onto something there that if the game can get exposed to people, I do think, I do think minds can change, or at least attitudes can change.
2: Well, and that was the, the, the key word that you just said there was exposed. Uh, exposure leads to, to so much. So whether it's about sport or whether it's things in society, whether it's, you know, uh, I feel strongly about, you know, some of the police officer-involved shootings that if we had greater exposure, you know, many times when you have officers that live in the suburb and come to work in the city, that there's there's a disconnect in, in understanding, you know, um, just cultural differences. And so exposure to that, I've seen that with so many things that just get a little more educated about something and and you you gain some knowledge that helps you think differently. And that was, I can't help but think, I'm I'm sure that the single mom, you know, you're seeing a strong, powerful woman, you know, make decisions and run a household that probably helped shape how you viewed women. And then certainly in in this case of basketball, being exposed uh, especially, you know, what what a great assignment uh, to have to take on the University of Connecticut, <laughs> uh, you know, team. Which, like you said, there's there's a lot of interesting stories, and you know that that's the thing that you know serves as a great deal of frustration for me is that you know we have to read about things on uh, the men's side. You know, I really, uh, you know, I, I thought there's so many interesting things on the women's side that are not. There's not a deeper dive, but yet we're going to write about the return of the bullpen cart and the evolution <laughs> of a bullpen cart. And we can't find enough stories about women, uh, women playing sports and their stories as, as they've, as they've kind of, you know, grown into uh, professionals. There's many, many things that are missed. And we take such deep dives. Uh, in men's sports and it's just done, you know, it just rolls off their tongue. It's just, it's not, it's not even a second thought about it. And so ha- you have to work so much harder to, to sort of shine the light and say, no, this is, you know, whether it's challenging the athletic uh, to say, you know, more needs to be done. And if you're saying that you're going to cover all sports, then truly cover all sports. Uh, and if it's, if it's not what you, if you're not going to cover women's sports, say that, say we're going to cover men's sports. And and so, yeah, there's uh, many, many layers to this
0: thing. Yeah, we'll get to athletics athletic in a second. I'm not going to lie you. I kind of like that bullpen uh, story, though. Uh, well, anyway, moving
2: on. <laughs> and many <then> did. <laughs> <laughs> um, what, um,
0: give, me, give the listeners a sense of what kind of press coverage you get in Minnesota on like a daily basis, daily basis during the season. And then can you give us a sense of, let's say, when you're on the road, um, what other cities are like in terms of people who are covering your games?
2: That's a great question. Um, and so, you know, our, our local media has been largely supported. So I don't, I don't, you know, mean to say that, you know, that it, the coverage is non existent. Uh, but I will say, so for example, day one, uh, we get a great turnout. Everyone comes out. Everyone's excited to kind of see the group. We see the whole, we have all of our local TV stations. We've got both of our major papers. We've got The Athletic. Uh, you know, obviously our, our in house folks. So great crowd. And that's often, you know, often the case. The first day, the second day, the the group naturally would get smaller. That's kind of the progression. In our case, the second day was actually a equally as large group because Tom Thibodeau held a press conference and they were there, <laughs> so it was an easy easy coverage thing. That's great. Uh, and then day three for us today, we probably saw again, still very strong representation uh, as it pertains to maybe comparing to other teams in the league. Uh, but probably half the size of what we saw the first couple of days. And that will continue to taper uh, as the season goes. It'll ramp up at certain times, you know, maybe around the beginning, um, you know, maybe around, you know, if we have a, a tough stretch or a great stretch, whatever it is, if there's something what they would, you know, what I would call maybe uh, out, outside the ordinary events. Um, you know, and there'll be practices We'll we'll have basically, you know, the beat writer for the Star Tribune, you know, maybe the athletic if they're gonna to commit to it the way that they seem they have, and then are in house. So it'll be literally, you know, four or five people there. Um and so then now let's take that to going on the road and this is now usually game days when I would see media. Um we just typically don't practice in an opposing city, so we're arriving and then we have shoot around, uh virtually no media. Uh, Other than, again, our own. No media shoot-around. I can't think of the last time that I had a media request after shoot-around, which is uncommon uh, in the NBA side. Uh, Because there's so much that's talked about leading into an NBA game. That does not happen in the WNBA. And then in most cities, the media group is so small that you, it's basically a scrum outside the locker room where maybe it's two people. And most times the, you know, it's, it's the in-house folks. I very rarely get, and they might be maybe at the other locker room, at the home locker room. I don't know, but you know, we usually, you know, it's just, you just kind of get in your, uh, I, I don't know the technical term for it, but you know, that that person is kind of getting their, their pooled quotes or whatever. And, and it gets shared with, you know, maybe they put it in the AP or whatever. And, um, but it's not an actual uh, AP writer there uh, that's doing the research. So, very, very minimal co- minimal coverage in most cities. There, there'll be a couple uh, that you know that again, depending on the game, depending on what happened, you know, what point in the season is, is there a ten game winning streak that was on the line, stuff like that. But, but I would say that you know here in in Minneapolis, we we definitely have uh, the strongest contingent of media. Um, And that's, you know, but the bar isn't high around the league.
0: (laughs) That's interesting. Um, I feel, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I I feel pretty confident that this is is accurate. In the last 12 to 16 months, um, I I have seen you on Twitter become far more active on this issue, this issue of coverage, uh, not just for your own team in the WNBA, but I think women's sports overall. You have become, and this is my word, an activist in this – sort of in, in this field is not the right word, but in this space, um, was there something just inside of you where you decided that I'm going to make my voice heard on this issue of, of women's sports being covered in the U S
2: yes, uh, years of, um, uh, being treated less than, (laughs) uh, you turn 50 years old and you have spent, you know, 30, darn near 30 years in a profession and you've seen minimal progress. And you grow tired of the same old and that coupled with the number of media types that have shared with me stories of reasons why, you know, they wanted to do something, but couldn't Uh, most of it rooted in decision makers, not being interested. And that's where I get into the bias. There's gender bias and there's, you know, there's, there's bias of, you know, again, which is probably rooted in the gender is, what is the, the decision maker interested in? You know, there's a bias that, that maybe they're not exposed to women's sports and they're kind of going, well, nobody wants to hear about that. And they're making that decision, you know, rather than recognizing sort of what's going on and being current and that there is a demand uh, in our case for, um, you know, for the Minnesota Lynx. But at the end of the day, in order for us to advance the game where I think it should be, And and, and because the game itself, the the game of basketball with the athletes that we have today is one hell of a product. And we're not getting the exposure. We're not getting at the league level. I don't think there's, I think there's an interest, but there's not a commitment to. And I think that, you know, um, I just feel like enough is enough. And we have to make bold movement, bold statements to to enact real change. And, And sitting idly by and doing the same thing over and over again and accepting it. Isn't going to get us anywhere, and that's why you've seen uh, me be more more active and, and shining a light. And you know, if I see something, I say something. I, I just think that's really important.
0: Did you um, did you have to, or did you choose to run this by uh, ownership, uh, the WNBA, or did you just make an individual decision? I'm doing this. I have some pretty good standing in the league, and if people want to be uh, have debates with me online, or if people want to be critical, so be it. It's a discussion that needs to be had.
2: Uh, no communication with, uh, CEO, uh, or owner. Um, I think our owner, Glenn Taylor is somebody that, you know, enjoys my passion, uh, for the sport and for, you know, women in leadership, et cetera. Um, you know, I don't know that he's on Twitter <laughs> or <laughs> anything else. Right. I don't know if he even knows, but, um, but I would say in general, that's our relationship. Um, I, I will say that, uh, you know, the, the CEO, you know, has moments where he goes, I just would like a heads up. <laughs> just let me know when there's maybe going to be a really interesting topic that you're going to banter with. And, um, you know, so it was more of that. There's, you know, zero censorship, because I think most know that that just would not work. Um, and that's, you know, that's not kind of, you know, what the environment is here. Uh, I think that, you know, I, I take this responsibility uh, seriously in terms of being the leader, uh, not only this franchise, but, you know, um, women in our community, uh, whether it's representing the the WMBA as a whole. And so I think being responsible in the way that I do this. um, And I've always felt like I've tried to be respectful uh, and responsible in my words and the battles that I choose to to take on. So um, I think it's important work. I see myself as so much more than a coach. And uh, the number of people that have uh, reached out to say thank you and, um, you know, many that can't, that can't speak up for a variety of reasons, for fear of retribution, um, you know, that's that that saddens me, you know, and, and I feel, you know, I feel very, very fortunate that uh, I am in a place where I can use my voice. And, and, and if I can do it to help others, that's what it's about.
0: I want to uh, uh, talk about two specific sort of media outlets that you've had um uh, that you were very public about including mine we'll do the athletics second but um could you give the listener some background on some conversations that you had locally because um you know you were maybe heat is not the right word but it was a pretty intense back and forth with you and some local some local uh sports media people correct
2: yeah you know and and that was you know, the athletic was a sort of the root of it, and I, you know, kind of full disclosure, I didn't necessarily take a deep dive into what the athletic was about. That there was a national athletic, there was regional athletic, and so when I challenged um, the idea that it was bad business for the athletic to not cover women's sports, I thought, why would any publication in this day and age, when when you're trying to find all angles to grow a business, why would you exclude? You know, the, the, the part that it involves women playing sport. And so when I made that challenge of the athletic in my mind, my challenge was to the national, you know, sort of the idea of the athletic that, you know, sort of kind of hung their hat on saying that, you know, come to us. We're your sports page. We're going to cover all sports. I just said, you know, that's, you're not covering all sports. I went through that, that site and found minimal coverage. This was, you know, sort of right around the Winter Olympics. Thank goodness we had the Winter Olympics. Otherwise, I would have seen probably nothing with regard to, to women playing sports. And so I want to, you know, I want to be able to, I'm not saying it's got to be equal. I've not even asked for that. But it has to represent the interest. And it's greater than, you know, 2%. Uh, and that's, you know, that that's my biggest challenge. And then I don't think it's good business. If there's a sector there that you could serve and you can grow your business even by a little bit, it's worth it. So that was my challenge. That was my statement. And then it, it kind of, uh, you know, the gentlemen uh, locally, uh, Michael Russo and, and John Krasinski. John Krasinski has been a great friend of, of not only myself personally, but the, uh, you know, kind of the, the local coverage. It's a guy I really trust. Um, I didn't necessarily see it as a personal attack on them and, and frankly didn't even associate their affiliation. Um, but but those two took it pretty hard, and, you know, particularly Michael and Michael, you know, kind of kind of jumped in, you know, two feet and, and it created tremendous dialogue. And John and I were able to go on uh, local, you know, uh, popular sports radio station, KFAN and, and have, you know, again, responsible dialogue and, and kind of talk about what we each want. And, you know, a lot of people think that I just want links coverage. So it's not about that. I want to read about women in sport. There's lots going on. You know, there are more professional leagues than people realize. And, you know, I like I, I said to, to Paul Allen at uh, KFAM, it's not that hard to mention that when, this, this isn't about money. This isn't costing you anything to be able to say, hey, let's catch the Lynx tonight. Or, hey, the Vixen, our football team is playing. Hey, they're 3 all. It's not that hard to mention that we exist. And so much of it is... You know, whether it's on ESPN or whatever, we might get some ticker space along the bottom, maybe. But my goodness, if you just dropped out out of the sky, onto the earth, and tuned in, you wouldn't think that women were playing sports. And that's just simply not the case, and it's not fair.
0: Yeah, it's interesting, because, you know, sort of as I, when I read that, um, it's very clear, and rightly so, you were frustrated by a lack of coverage in women's sports. And then, I guess, Michael Russo, who's not my colleague, uh, um, was sort of frustrated that he what he felt was unfair criticism about the Minnesota part of the athletic. If you fast forward now, and again, these decisions are being made at the, as they say in the business, pay grades well above mine. Um, the Minnesota site now has two people who are covering links. And I don't think it takes a big leap to, um, to say that your voice and your being public about this is absolutely a reason why. It's not to say that the links don't deserve the coverage. I think, obviously, anybody who listens to this podcast knows I'm a huge women's basketball uh, fan, and uh, and I find it fascinating. So obviously, it would be something I'd want covered. But I really think, Cheryl, that you're putting that out there publicly had a real impact on that decision. So in that sense, um, you're, you're being public about this at least at the moment has had a positive result in where you are hoping coverage goes.
2: Well, to be fair, and this was uh both Michael and and John's uh rebuttal was that uh it's coming, you know, like for me to be patient, you know, coverage of the links was coming and like I said I wasn't necessarily interested in just links coverage uh but they had plans. Um they have been both both Michael and and John have been you know, supporters in least in some way, if it's a little small, in some way have supported our team right. and supported me personally. And so, I don't, I don't think it was uh, that per se that led to them hiring because they said that was part of the plan. Now, what I will say is, I think that because of the dialogue and because of them putting themselves out there, that they were, you know, that coverage was coming. It makes them a little more alert to. You know, maybe if they thought about skipping it here or there, that might they might think, well, we we probably better not since we've committed to this. Uh, So I think it might have that uh, that that sort of effect. uh, To you know, and that's exactly you know that's if that's what it takes, you know, to be thought of. You know that you know fear if you don't, then you might be uh, put on blast. Um, You know that's hey whatever it takes. You know because I think it's you know like I said um, why would you not want to cover the Minnesota Lynx and there's so many stories about our team. Uh, that are interesting that I think fit the athletic, you know, the athletic isn't just going to report a story on the game, you know, that virtually no one does that anymore. You know, it's all about the other angles. And in order to understand it, you have to be here. You have to know the players and you have to know the routine and you have to know where to, where to look for a story. And if you're not here or if you're just sort of interested and you're not committed to it, then it's going to reflect in, in the type of coverage and, and you know, like I said, there's, there's many stories to be told and I'm, I'm looking forward to, you know, athletic has been, they've had two people there in each of their practices and, and I think this is going to go really well, but I, I can't take credit for it. I think that was sort of their vision from, from the get go with that. So I appreciate that from Michael and John.
0: Yeah. Full marks to them. And I appreciate you giving the perspective. And I will mention just for this podcast, Sloan Martin and Tyler Mason are the two writers now covering, um, the links. And I, I, I think it's just cool. I'm really glad to work at a place that at least, at least has committed to um, covering what's one of the great dynasties in professional sports and and clearly the Rolls Royce of the WNBA at the moment. Um, I want to ask you about um, your some of your players in relation to this. Um, you have some of the most famous women's basketball players on the planet. Simone Augustus, Sylvia Fowles, Lindsay Whalen, Rebecca Brunson, and then probably above everyone in terms of sort of popularity or at least in fame, Maya Moore, um, who is the sports undeniably top winner. And if you ask people on the street if they name a women's basketball player, she might be the first person they would name. How do your player, How have you discussed these issues, Cheryl, with, you, with your players, and how do they feel about um, – being at least forerunners in providing as much access as your local market wants, because in some, on, as you know, on some teams, maybe the coach in, coaches and ownership would not—I um, don't know—would would not be as forthcoming when it comes to access. But it's very clear, as you just said, the links are not turning down stuff.
2: Right. Yeah, and I think that's something that we all have enjoyed as we've, we've grown together, you know, on our, our mini journeys, you know, since 2010. And a lot of that along the way is is us getting to know each other so well. You know, this this core group that's been together, Um, they they know from really from the get-go how I have felt about uh, us being, you know, more than just basketball players, more than just about winning games, and that we want to, you know, share ourselves. First, it's about connecting with fans and creating, you know, that interest for people feeling like I want to come to the games and watch Simone, or Lindsay, or Maya, because maybe they interacted with me, or maybe Syl took an extra uh, few minutes to go say hello to a fan, and they go, holy cow, like, I want to go see Sill the next night, and you, I mean, there's no secret, that's what it's about, that's what attendance is about, is feeling connected to the group, and they they get, and, then, and that, that passion they now feel for uh, what we're doing, and so I think that's been a big part of it, and then and then we've sort of taken on uh, some social issues at, uh, along the way right. and, you know, sort of using our voices and it takes courage. And so, yes, we talk about, you know, in the beginning, you know, when we would have our, uh, you know, we might be celebrating title nine, you know, different years. I think it was a 40th anniversary one year we celebrated it. It just allows us uh, to, you know, for, for me, it's not just another game that we're wearing certain jerseys for. Uh, we talk about each of the initiatives of the league, we also encourage them to share with us any initiatives that they feel like they, they want to bring light to and get involved in. And so we're, we're pretty active with regard to that. And, you know, we told them it, it's, a, it's a great responsibility. It takes courage because not everyone's going to agree uh, with your stance and, and just what that means and how to go about it thoughtfully. And, and, you know, if you want to enact change, you know, you can't you can't just sit idly by and let someone else do it. You know, you got to have the courage to do it yourself. And, and then as it you know, pertains to, you know, PR and CR requests, I mean, they, they just understand it. We're, we're trying to grow the game. We're trying to make it better than when we started. You know, there's lots of talk about the salaries uh, of women playing sports and, you know, uh, women's hockey having to go the route that they did, you know, to, to be compensated more fairly. Women's soccer, you know, same thing. And, and then, you know, the WNBA, certainly there's been a few articles written about, Uh, our, our salaries of our players. And, but they know, you know, that at the end of the day, there's the business component to it. And, and, you know, there's some, some arenas we go to and you go, this doesn't look very good. The optics on this, you know, not very good. Um, And, and so that's not here in Minnesota, but it is a part of our league. And so they, they see that and they understand how far we have to go and that they have to be, you know, active participants in our growth.
0: You mentioned um and this team has very has been very active, particularly active when it comes to social issues that they care about. Um, I wanted to ask you, knowing that you were coming on, have you been asked by this current White House to come for a uh, celebration for your championship last year?
2: We have not uh, and that that's certainly been disappointing, you know the sort of the thrill you know that we've experienced through you know, winning four championships, uh, Barack Obama was our president, and um, has been really, really thoughtful in that when we win, so in October in 2011, 13, 15, and then 17, or I'm sorry, 15, so it was the three of them, upon winning within 24 hours, we would get notification that the White House was going to be calling us. And so we, anyone that was still in town, we would gather, and and we would accept a call from the president, and we would have a conversation Uh, Really meaningful, really, really special times. And on that phone call, the president would say to us, you know, that he would be looking forward to hosting us at the White House to celebrate our championship with him. And so that's kind of what we've grown accustomed to um, in in, in sort of the the protocol of that. Uh, This president may have, um, you know, a a different protocol, uh, but to this point, you know, we won in October you know, we, we haven't heard anything from, from the White House with regard to either a note of congratulations or even uh, offering us to visit at some point during uh, this upcoming summer.
0: Are you personally disappointed by that decision, at least not to reach out?
2: I am. Uh, you know, of all the things we just talked about, um, that, you know, what is the reason for this? Is it, you know, is it, I, I think there's other teams that have celebrated championships there um, that have been, that have been invited. And, you know, I don't want to think that maybe it's because we're, we're women that, you know, we're not as valued, but it's hard to see it, anything different than that because, um, the men's sports, uh, have, have been invited.
0: One more on this. I did read, um, in, um, maybe October of 2017 or something. It was certainly last year that one of your players was at least very definitive and said that if asked, I would not go. And that's Rebecca Brunson. Um, if that, if that offer, uh, Ever comes? How would you approach that, knowing that at least one of your players publicly has said, "I would not accept the offer."
2: Yeah, you, know, you know, I certainly had to to give it some thought. Uh, haven't been forced to, you know, to to really uh, take a deeper dive. But in in any year that we considered going to the White House, we always gathered our, our captains, our leaders, and 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 even you know prior to this uh, uh, president because sometimes the schedule doesn't work or maybe it might create a hardship. So we always considered, should we go? And we let them decide. And so there wouldn't be anything different about if we were to happen to receive a call uh, with an invite, we would gather the leaders. Now this one requires more conversation. You know, this isn't just going to be about, well, geez, it's in between a road trip. Are we sure, you know, we don't want to jeopardize the current season. This would be a little bit deeper because uh, as you mentioned, there are some that have some pretty strong feelings about maybe, Possibly sharing this with this president, um, but I would encourage much more dialogue about it, and to use it as an opportunity, perhaps, uh, to shine the light uh, on on things that that we value that might, you know, possibly open our president's mind uh, to things. Now, I don't know whether I would win that or not, <laughs> right. um, but I would certainly encourage dialogue and not just in the media, because I think that's what. Uh, this president invokes in a lot of us is this sort of taking sides. And, um, you know, I think that I would want us to not let this president affect us in that way. This championship was very special to us. Champions visit the White House. And are we going to let this president, you know, stand in the way of that? And is there a way that that we could accomplish what we want to accomplish as a team and share in something special and also maybe do some good uh, in in bringing some people together?
0: All right, a couple more here I want to end with, and that's, um, on some basketball related stuff, um, one of the things that you might have saw uh, a week ago or so, Adam Silver was on ESPN and was asked um, mostly about the NBA. there was a WNBA component of that interview that came up. and he talked about the not that it would that not that it was inevitable or that it was imminent, but he did talk about the prospect of maybe discussing moving the WNBA season. Of course the issue there is that so many players in the league, so many star players play abroad and that's where they make uh, you know uh, the majority of their money for the year. How do you um, w- where do you weigh in on the prospect of changing the WNBA season?
2: Well, you know I, I think that w- we've all said every, you know, when all the leaders ever ever gather, whether it's in competition meetings or board of governors meetings, I think we always have an eye for if it will help our game, if it'll help, we'll continue to grow it and grow the business, we have to consider it. And, and so if the, the powers that be have done their research and have found a way uh, to, to make it work playing at a different time, I think we'd all be for that. Um, but I think the you know when the league was established, there was a lot of thought given to carving out a space that the WNBA would be able to stand in and be able to not uh, compete with so many other sports, which would take place during the winter. And so we found that, that our, our window, you know, there was a couple of things. There's, you know, there's the idea of stateside, the domestic, you know, issues of, you know, media coverage, facilities, that sort of thing. And then now uh, you also have to consider the European seasons. And so we sort of just kind of fit, uh, you know, um, kind of opposite of Europe and, and, and uh, Asia. And so what that would mean if, if we then were to some, somehow decide that, you know, playing at a different time, we're now competing, you know, with places that are paying more than we are. Right. And and you know that's a, that would be a pretty bold move, and and you know we're going to have to come with a lot more money to be able to do that.
0: You um, you won four championships in the last seven years. Um, of course, with that <laughs> comes age, and you look at your roster <laughs> to me or to the players. To the well, we're all getting old, Joe. Sure. No, no one, no one's beating father time here. But uh, I look at your roster, and you know. Rebecca Brunson, I think, is 36, will be 37 in December. Um, Lindsey Whalen will be 36 in a couple of days. Simone Augustus is in her 12th year in the league. Sylvia Fowles is in her 10th year. So the question is, and I think you've been very honest about this, that you're closer to the end than you are to the beginning. What is your mindset when you have a team that has a lot of um, – has a obviously has certainly a lot of skill but also has a lot of age on it do you have to more than any other year are you thinking about how you manage minutes with this team do you try to figure out a way to really sort of keep the eye on maybe the playoffs this year not to say you'd give up some regular season games but it's it's just interesting to me you really have i don't know if anybody's ever coached a more veteran team than you will coach this year
2: (laughs) um well, give me a veteran every day of the week. Give me, give me talent and experience every day of the week, and, and we can do something with it. Uh, you know, I would say that um, our, our veterans have, uh, you know, particularly Rebecca Brunson, who's the oldest, has just taken great care of herself. At the same time, um, you can't escape that. You know, the older you get, the toll that it takes on your body, uh, all those years, and so everything hurts a little bit more. Um, you know, recovery from you know a game takes a little bit longer. And so I think we've been pretty mindful of a couple of things. You know, we're really uh, highlighting much more, uh, particularly in this, this season coming up, you know, a, a more frenetic case, nutrition and rest. You know, we we're, we're definitely uh, have our sights on that over the last few years much more than ever. Um, this year we've gone to later flights. You know, if this is the first time we've kind of made that push that, you know, we're getting back to the city at one time. Um, was was maybe a little more uh, of a priority. Now it's you know we need to be able to get the rest we need and then and then fly back just because it it takes a toll, you know when you're taking a seven a.m. flight, you know they are having to get up, you know late game, you know you, you get you get back from a game and you can't wind down. It's two three a.m. and you're getting up at at six to to roll out and that that just catches up to you a uh, week after week after week and so. Uh, we, we definitely made a concerted effort to pay more attention to that. And then, you know, on the court, you know, what we do in practice, you know, I have to be really careful not to, you know, we, we got to get in what we need to get in. But, you know, you, you got to find ways that you're not overdoing it. There's, you got to be more creative in trying to get to, you know, the, the complete team that you want to be. You can't I can't do it the same that I did it in the first three or four years. And then certainly managing minutes has been the top of mind now for probably three or four seasons. Uh, When I go back and I watch our games from 2011, 2012, and I'm watching Lindsay and Simone play 35 minutes, just grinding them and Brunson, you know, it probably wasn't good for them then, you know, good for them then, but I certainly could not get away with it uh, now. So uh, we do want to have one of the best records in the league. We, We believe in, you know, being in one of the top two spots. Uh, that that best positions you. So we're we're certainly after that. You, can, you can't you can't uh, you know like you said you just you know throw away games in the regular season just in the name of rest. We think our our bench is going to be a big factor in this again, and, and and we like the the group that we've put together, and and you know we're going to win the game. You know whatever it takes. If somebody had to play 32 minutes to do it, we're going to do it, and then we're going to you know be more mindful. Maybe we got to take a day off from practice, uh, but we we can't. We have to win the games.
0: Lindsay Whalen had took in this uh offseason took the job of the University of Minnesota women's basketball coach. Uh you know, a huge job, obviously Big 10 job. Will um this year will you because of the fact that she's going to be a head coach at a pretty prominent college, will she be in coaches meetings with you? Will you um will her experience this year be different because of the job that she's going to have in a couple months?
2: Yeah, it already is. Um you know, I think just in the way that she views things, it's already different. You know, she's already, you know, she's she's really gotten over there and 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 just tackling you know big things and and so she's already sort of got this mindset of of wearing the the coach's cap so to speak and so I see her her mindset a little bit different uh, in practice. What she's paying attention to, she's talked about, you know, uh, wanting to talk about drills, wanting to talk about offenses and uh, that sort of thing. So she's paying a little more attention. She was always great, always coachable, always, you know, all the intangibles. But there's a, a different level, uh, with which that she's, you know, focusing on little things. You know, perhaps it's when we gather up in a circle, the messaging, you know, that maybe as a player you take for granted, but now as a coach you go, you know what, that's gonna be me in a few months. I wanna, you know, like where where does that come from? Where where does your messaging come from? How do you arrive at what needs to be said and how do you have a feel for that? And, and so those are sort of the questions I get. And, um, you know, Lindsay, we were doing a drill the other day, and she popped over to the side real quick and said, hey, I need to get that one on paper. <laughs> I want to run that, you know. <laughs> so it's it's it definitely and, – and I think it's going to be highly beneficial to us. I think there's
1: um,
2: a bit of a, you know, a surge, if you will, that I think she's gotten from this that, you know, I think she's always appreciated the game, but I think there's just something a little, a little special about this thing now, being a coach – and a player, I'm sure she feels tremendous responsibility, um, to, to make sure that, that she's great, you know, for both the Minnesota Lynx and as, as the leader of the Gopher program.
0: You, um, you have the Los Angeles Sparks on Sunday, May 20th at the Target Center. I think that is your season opener. Sparks have been the, um, your finals rival over the last couple of years. You guys have sort of produced some amazing basketball. What at the moment are, um, what's ticket sales been like for that game? It seems like from what I've read, um, the interest is pretty great for your opener.
2: It is, you know, I know, uh, you know, it's, it's a tough opener uh, for both teams. You know, <laughs> we just you know, it feels like the series just ended a week ago. We're still tired from it. Um, it, it, it invokes a lot of emotion, I think on both sides, you know, ESPN is, is, particularly excited about it. Cause I think that, you know, they, they show well when, when, when they, when they have us on and. Um, you know, I, I think our fans are particularly excited. You know, the word is, you know, that, um, the, the upper deck, uh, is, is open, uh, for sales. I don't know that we've experienced that this early. Um, the staff works really, really hard in all around the league, you know, for home openers. That's whether it's in men's basketball, women's basketball, a home opener is a, you know, sort of a statement game and, and, and we all try to, you know, try to sell it out, but this one has a little, I think a little extra to it. And, and, um, You know, I I wouldn't be surprised if we got pretty darn close to selling selling, uh, most of the seats in the arena.
0: Wow, that's pretty impressive. Uh, And then finally for me, um, what's a realistic season for Maya Moore this year?
2: You know, um, I I think that a realistic season for Maya is to be back in the... Not to say she wasn't last year in the MVP conversation, but like a legitimate chance at being uh, the MVP of this league again. Uh, It will be... um, I guess for us, a success, if we could have both Maya and Sil in that conversation, and, and that, that will that will mean that our season was, was what we were after in terms of the overall success that those two play at that level. I think Maya is coming off of um, a season in Russia. They have to win one more game over there, and she can get back here, take a couple of days to rest, and then she wants to get back with her team. Um, I, I suspect she's going to come in in rhythm. You know, which she didn't last year. You know, she needed the time off, but didn't necessarily come in with the rhythm that I think we're going to see this year. And so, um, Maya is a hungry, a hungry player that always wants to do more, wants to do better. She's added some stuff to her game, and she's going to have a big responsibility uh, for our team. She always does, but this this season feels like a little bit more that we're going to need her from start to finish.
0: The she the she's playing right now for UMMC. I'm probably going to mispronounce this. Eke- Katrinberg. Yeah. That, so that so that season's not over yet. They're still. They're almost done.
2: They're, yeah. So they're in Game Three of the series against Dynamo Korsk, and that 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 uh. game is uh, in in Kursk on Wednesday. So um, tomorrow. So that will be games. That will be Game Three. It's a best of five series. If they have a, a chance to win that one, uh, that will be great. And and uh, all the WBA WNBA players can get back to their WBA cities. <laughs>
0: sure i know you know this obviously because you coach her but like i like to just tweet this out every now and then um it, it, you ever just sort of in front of you like stare at all of maya moore's titles four nba titles two ncaa yeah. titles two Great. olympic golds 125 and three in high school three chinese championships one euro league championship in spain one euro league championship in russia we might have one more coming up at the end of this week and she's not even 30 years old
2: exactly yeah, that's you know when you look at our franchise's success, you know there's a lot of things that have gone right, a lot of tremendous people, uh, but getting lucky in the lottery uh, and and being in the lottery in the right year, which was the year of Maya Moore, um, no question is what what made this franchise what it is and and you know everywhere she goes, I mean she's just a winner, and uh, you know more than that, you know and I, I know Maya would uh, that this would mean a lot more to her than what a great player she is, is, is a tremendous person you know, to be able to have both, you know, to represent our franchise the way that she does, and represent the league, Uh, and, and, you know, and and even more than that, like, she transcends so much, um, you know, and and she's a household name, not just in women's sports, but in in all of sports.
0: Yeah, you and Auriemma, man, you two got lucky. I'll just put it that way. (laughs) We sure did.
2: It makes (laughs) us look good.
0: (laughs) Uh, Cheryl Reeve is the head coach and general manager of the Minnesota Lynx. Under Cheryl, the Lynx have won four titles in seven years. Her record, as I said, at the top, 195 and 77. That is a nice record. Listen, Cheryl, um, you know I'm a great admirer of yours, um, and I've always enjoyed our interactions uh, in terms of uh, a press person and, uh, and a coach in a high-profile league. I hope you continue being public. Um, I know you will about this issue that means uh, so much to you, and I, I really appreciate your time today. Thanks for coming on the sports media podcast.
2: Well, I certainly appreciate your support and uh, anytime you want to talk, I'm here.
0: (laughs) All right, back in the studio. My thanks to Doris Burke and Cheryl Reeve, two great guests. Um, I really appreciate their time. My thanks to my podcast producer, Lou Pellegrino. This is episode number four. And if you want to catch up on some of the previous episodes, Vern Lundquist was the lead guest on the last one. We had a great conversation on his career and uh, what he hopes to do next in terms of calling golf. And before that, Jason Stark and Ken Rosenthal on baseball writing and reporting, and Tim Layden on the death and life of William Knack. So please catch those episodes. Subscribe to this podcast, which is new. The Sports Media with Richard Deitch podcast. You can subscribe on Apple. Uh, We also are on Stitcher, Google Play, RSS, pretty much wherever you can get podcasts. For Lou Pellegrino, for Cadence 13, This is Richard Deitch. We'll see you again on the Sports Media Podcast with Richard Deitch.